You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, welcome to this week's BMJ podcast on the 19th of March 2010. My name's David Payne. This week in the BMJ, we published some research into sunbed use. Cancer Research UK surveyed teenagers across the country to find out how often they top up their TAM. Duncan Jarvis is talking to Catherine Thomas from CRUK and Marilyn Brindley, a journalist who's often campaigned on the dangers of solariums. I couldn't believe it when I sort of thought this is every other girl walking down the street is using a sunbed salon. Also this week, recent revelations from a group of stem cell scientists has shone a light on some of the problems with peer review. Modern science seems to hold it sacrosanct. But in a feature in this week's BMJ from Mark Henderson, it goes through the various ways in which it might not work. Trish Groves, the BMJ's research editor, talks to Liz Wager, an independent researcher, into peer review about the process and the ways in which it could be improved. I do think journal editors need to be thinking and thoughtful. You know, they shouldn't just say, this is the way the journal has always done it, so we'll do our peer review that way. But before that, here's Juliet Walker with her pick of this week's news. Hello, Juliet. Hi, David. So what have you got for us this week? Well, the first story that caught my eye is that a deal has been struck between Weight Watchers and McDonald's in New Zealand, mm. which has provoked some anger, understandably. Um, the deal is that some meals served in McDonald's have been approved by Weight Watchers, which public health experts are calling a brilliant promotion for junk food. And they fear that the deal may have been done more to benefit the company's bottom lines rather than actually helping the health of the community. Right. But um, McDonald's have done this before, haven't they, in in that part of the world? Yes. um, In Australia in 2007, they had a deal with the National Heart Foundation, which, in fact, although it was widely criticised when it started, now the evidence is that it was quite beneficial to people's health and... McDonald's, as a result of it, started to use canola oil, which has 60% less saturated fat. So it has improved the health of their meals. Right, okay. So So if you want to comment on that story, remember go to bmj.com and follow the rapid response link. So what else have you got for us today, Juliet? Another story that's in the news this week is that there has been a court ruling on Vioxx in Australia. The court has found that the anti-arthritis drug Vioxx increases the risk of having a heart attack. And they also ruled that the Australian subsidiary of Merck engaged in negligent and misleading behaviour. Right. OK. Two stories from the Antipodes there. What else have you got for us, Juliet? The King's Fund have published a report saying that a partnership between the government and the public to fund social care for the elderly would not only increase the amount of care that people can access, but also increase the number of people who would be able to access this care. Just for, just for the benefit of our international readers, the King's Fund is a sort of London-based um, health think tank, a yes. charity, yes. yes. I think social care is going to be a big battleground for the forthcoming UK election. Yes, I think so, and obviously increasingly it's a more important issue. So if you want to find out more about that story, go to bmj.com. I'm sure we'll be following that topic in the next few weeks as the um, election campaign is launched. Thank you, Juliet. Thank you, David. So that's Juliet's news roundup for this week. And uh, now we're going over to Duncan Jarvis, who's going to look into sunbed use. So I'm joined now by Madeline Brindley, who's health editor for Media Wales, and Catherine Thompson, who's head of statistics for Cancer Research UK. Madeline's campaigned to highlight the dangers of sunbed and has helped to make councils in Wales remove them from all their premises, you know, gyms and leisure centres. At the same time, Catherine and her team have done a national survey to try and estimate how many teenagers in the UK regularly use sunbeds. So Madeline, to you for a start, um, can you set out the sort of landscape of sunbed use in the UK? What's happening on the ground? 
I, I think there's a certain part of uh, teenagers who still believe, teenagers and young people, who still believe that a tan is a sign of health and a tan is somehow a fashion symbol as much as having long straight hair is. So I think there's a huge amount of pressure on younger people to conform to the stereotype notion of uh, tanned skin. Mm-hmm. And I think far too many children, are, or children and young people, are taking risks by using sunbed salons to achieve that look. And very often these sunbed salons are unmanned and coin-operated. They're going in using sunbeds without any inclination of the risk and the harm that they may be doing to their skin and their health. These unmanned sunbeds are incredibly cheap, aren't they? Incredibly so. I mean, I was absolutely shocked when I first started writing stories about this and looking into it some four or five years ago. And it can be as little as 25p a minute. I've met people in, who've been walking around absolutely red raw because they've put a fiver into these machines and spent the best part of half an hour on one, absolutely oblivious of what they're doing to their skin under this mistaken notion that the more they burn, the better their tan will be in the end. So, Catherine, going to you, how strong is the UV light in these sunbeds? Yeah, we know that the strength of the UV radiation is, is can be as strong as about 12 times the midday sun um, in the Mediterranean. So, obviously, you're getting very hit very, by very dangerous ultraviolet radiation. Um, and recently, the International Association for Research on Cancer reclassified UV radiation um, from sunbed salons or tanning lamps um, as being the highest risk can- category for getting cancer. So we know that it's really important that children aren't getting access to, to these sunbed salons, especially when so many of them are unmanned. And are we seeing the effects of the increased exposure yet? We are seeing the rates of me- malignant melanoma, which is the fatal form of skin cancer. They're increasing rapidly at the moment. Um, in the last three decades, they've quadrupled the rates over all ages. Um, and it's the fastest growing cancer in terms of incidence. Um, and it's in particular in young, young women and young people, it is really taking off and the rates are just um, dramatically increasing. And if you think about it, these children haven't had a chance to be on holiday year after year getting sunburnt. Mm-hmm. So their risk of the, or the skin cancers that they're seeing must be coming from the exposure they're getting of the sunbed salons. Sure. So you've come up with this quarter of a million figure. Yeah. How did you do that? We sampled uh, 3,000 girls across the whole country. So we had a very nationally representative study, mm-hmm. conducted face-to-face interviews and that came up with an estimate of 6%. Yep. And then what we did was apply that to the population uh, in 2008 and said, OK, if 6% are using sunbeds, then across the whole country, this then equates up to a quarter of a million as our estimated number of used sunbeds. Sure. So how did you go about quizzing um, these teenagers about their sunbed use? In conjunction with experts in the, in the field around skin cancer and running focus groups, we worked to, to develop a questionnaire to explore their sunbed use, um, have they used it, but also uh, were they supervised when they were using them, um, and and then went and targeted 3,000 across the country and then 6,000 as well in specific cities to get a feel for the ur- use of sunbeds in urban areas where there tends to be more salons. Sure, and was use in some areas really enormously higher than in others. Yeah, and in Liverpool and Sunderland, the use was it was just shocking. I, I couldn't believe it when I sort of thought, what do you mean 50% of 15 to 17-year-old girls are using a sunbed? That's, it's just, this is every other girl 
walking down the street is using a sun, sunbed salon and most of them are using them sort of at least once a week so it, it is quite frightening the, the risks that they're putting themselves at and may not know they're putting themselves out. Now one thing you didn't look at in your survey was natural exposure to sunlight, people going on holiday or sunbathing in the back gardens. Why didn't you look at that? Um, I think it was around... We, we specifically wanted to understand about sunbed use um, and I think it would have made the questionnaire and the uh, questions that much longer and more difficult. Um, and I suppose if you're interviewing 11 to 17-year-olds, it's making sure that the questions aren't too complicated for them to understand and it's, have you used a sunbed? It's a fairly easy answer. Whereas are they really going to remember details about the, the holiday they had last year or how often they spent in the sun? It, it, we, we took advice from, from experts when we were putting the questionnaire together and they said, focus on the sunbed, capturing the information about sunbeds, how often they're using them and and then around the levels of supervision, do they really understand? You've talked there specifically about girls. How do boys use sunbeds? Boys surprisingly do use them um, quite a lot. The, the use isn't as high as in girls, but uh, in Liverpool, 20% of, of boys have used a sunbed. Um, so it's sort of certainly the, the Cristiano Ronaldo sort of look of perfect suntan is getting through to them as well. So I suppose this could be expected... Fashion's taking precedence over safety for teenagers. No, I guess it's it's sort of it happens to older people. If you, I would guess uh, yes. it's a bit like smoking behind the bike sheds. Um, you don't think about the risks of what can happen in the future. Madeline, have you found it's going that way? It is. I think there's there's a huge amount of misunderstanding about the sun, and then about sunbeds as well. I think some people still see sunbeds as quite safe because they're provided in in salons, in man salons, and the notion is that, well, they can't be unsafe other than they wouldn't be available, mm-hmm. yes. so readily available. But I think overall there's a huge gap in people's knowledge about the impact of the sun or UV on our skin and the link with skin cancer further down the line from too much exposure. I think there's also confusion about vitamin D, the idea that sunlight boots vitamin D protection, uh, production and therefore it's somehow good for you. And I think that just kind of muddies the water even further. Catherine, the work that Madeline's done in Wales and the research that you've been conducting have helped towards a private member's bill. That's a piece of legislation that's currently going through the UK Parliament. Um, What's the legislation proposing? The main message is that we want to ban under 18s getting access to sunbed salons. Um, And that's, that's what is, is the sort of front page the, the main thing is to ban use in under 18s and to give um, local authorities the power to go in and check that salons aren't breaking these rules and find them if they are. And how's that legislation going? It's going quite well. We managed to um, it went through the second reading in the House of Commons um, and it's now been passed by the House of Commons on Friday last week mm-hmm. um, and it's now been passed up to the House of Lords the big problem we've got is the sort of time of the general election and whether we can get it through the House of Lords before that. Because um, all, all be, legislation stops. Yes. <laughs> so it's sort of the clock's ticking, but um, I think we are hopeful that, that it will get through in time. Um, it has 
got cross-party support, so you would hope that the Lords will also give it the backing to sort of protect children from the dangers of sun, using sunbeds. Sure. Catherine, Madeline, thanks for joining us. So from sunlight to a spotlight, peer review has been in the news, and Trish Groves talks to Liz Wager about some of the points raised in a recent BMJ feature. We're now joined by Liz Wager, who is a independent publications consultant, uh, but also uh, a researcher, and she co-authored the Cochrane Reviews on peer review. And Liz is actually also the chair of the Committee on Publication Ethics, although she's not here speaking for COPE today. Um, Liz, you're here to talk about a feature that's in the BMJ about peer review. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yes, well, Mark Henderson has pulled together various, what he calls problems with peer review, and uh, because several have really hit the headlines just recently. So he's talking about the, um, the climate change controversy and the leaked emails around East Anglia. Um, he's mentioning the Wakefield attraction in The Lancet and journals' responses to misconduct. Um, he's also talking about the concern by reviewers, uh, by researchers in stem cell um, science who are concerned about whether peer review is fair or not and focusing in on the response to journals in particular to that which I think is of great interest. Hmm. Do you you think people expect too much from peer review? I do. I think it's good to it's good now that people are educated to understand the difference between peer reviewed and non peer reviewed but i think sometimes we've gone a bit too far and uh, there's now an assumption that if it's peer reviewed it must be absolutely fine and of course the evidence really is that Peer review is pretty weak at detecting out-and-out fraud. We've had the major cases. We've had the the Jan Hendrik Schoen case in Germany on physics. We've had the Wang um, cloning experiments and so on. We know that peer review doesn't always root out real fabrication and fraud. And I think it would be fair enough to say, and that's what our systematic review showed, that really the evidence of what peer review does is is pretty weak. Mm. Do you think journals could be doing a better job, though? Are there, are there better ways of doing peer reviews than, than are currently used? I do think journal editors need to be thinking and thoughtful. You know, they shouldn't just say, this is the way the journal has always done it, so we'll do our peer review that way. And um, I think there are lots of different variants, and it's very important for journals to look at those. Ideally, what they should be actually doing is experimenting. And I know that's an area that the BMJ has done. So ideally, you should have evidence-based editing as well as evidence-based medicine. Um, But I think you also need to realise that perhaps there are different solutions for different types of journal. So, for example, getting a reviewer to sign their review just may not work in a very small research field where everybody knows everybody else and people really do need anonymity to be able to speak their minds fully. Uh, Whereas for a bigger general medical journal, the BMJ has found that signed review works really well. Um, But that may be because they have a much bigger pool of reviewers. So the chances of you actually knowing the author personally are that much less. Some journals actually publish the reviews alongside the papers, don't they? How, How does that work? I think this is really interesting. This is something that um, Mark Henderson's article refers to, and it's something that the stem cell researchers have actually called for because their concern was that actually the reviewers were 
being unfair themselves, that they were competitors and they were asking for unreasonable extra experiments or new analyses that would delay the other paper. And so, yes, you're right, Biomed Central have probably been doing this for longest and they have a pre-publication history. So every paper that's published, you can click through and behind the paper, you can actually see the original submitted version, the revised version and the reviewer's comments. So it's all totally transparent. I understand about the stem cell area that the um, EMBO journal, that's the European Molecular Biology Organization, they're now doing a sort of modified version of that. So they're going to post the peer reviewer's comments, but they're going to remain anonymous. But I think the idea behind that is that if a reviewer, if, say, one reviewer has stepped out of line and has asked for things that do appear to be, you know, excessive, it will become transparent. I guess my concern is that it's going to be very difficult for readers to really judge, is this a reasonable thing to be asking? Because sometimes you do need extra work to be done or a different analysis, and that's you know one of the things that might be a very valuable peer review. So I don't think you can say, absolutely, you must do it this way. And I think also there are, must be concerns that although don't actually post the reviewers' names, that some people will be able to guess who they were. So the anonymity may not be complete. Yeah, there's certainly evidence, isn't there, that authors, about half the time, can guess who the reviewers were. Absolutely. And the other way around as well, when the um, authors' names are taken off the paper and review journals try to blind their review process, there's quite clear evidence that reviewers very often can guess that. I believe the EMBO journal is doing this as a pilot and they're going to look at things, for example, does it decrease the rate of people accepting to do review? Because that's a pretty tough area. A lot of journal editors say that's one of the hardest things these days. Academics are very busy, they're not being paid to do the peer review, and actually a lot of them just say, sorry, I haven't got time. So if you then build in the fact that your review is going to be available for all to see for perpetuity on the web, a few more people may say, oh, sorry, you know, I don't want to do this. But in theory, anything that increases transparency does sound like a good idea. Well, equally, it might be a very good way for reviewers to get more recognition for the work they do, which is really important and which at the moment is hidden and and not valued and often uh, not given any protected time and so on. Absolutely. No, that's a very good point. One of the arguments I know when the BMJ was considering its own signed review system uh, was that it could actually improve the quality of the review because rather than dashing something off in a bit of a hurry and not doing something, you know, doing a rather superficial job, maybe if it's, you know, if your name is on it, maybe you do it more thoroughly. Similarly, maybe even if your name isn't on it, but you know it's going to appear on the web so that not just the authors, but everybody in the field can look at it, um, perhaps you'll, you know, do a slightly more thorough job. Who knows? Well, the the BMJ's randomised controlled trial on this um, showed that actually the quality was the same, uh, whether or not the reviews were signed, but but it was already pretty high quality, so there was perhaps a ceiling effect. That was enough for us to go ahead and introduce signed review, what we call open review, because uh, we felt that at least it did no harm. What, what many critics say is that if people sign the review, then they will actually be very bland reviews. They won't say what they really mean. And we didn't find that in our randomised trials. So that's, that's interesting. Well, Liz, thank you very much indeed. It's a great topic and I'm sure we'll revisit it many times. Thank you. And you can read that feature online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll tell the tale of how the father of vaccination, Edward Jenner, was knocked off his pedestal and why the BMJ wants to put him back. 
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.